Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead, Verite Newsroom recently published a follow-up investigation into the Baton Rouge Police Department. Five months ago, we heard about their five-part series into misconduct and community mistrust, particularly of the department's Internal Affairs Division. We get information on the update to that investigation that they are publishing today. Also, Alzheimer's advocates in Louisiana are concerned that the state's Latino, Latina communities aren't getting enough information about the disease. We'll hear about that from the Louisiana chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. But first, if you live in Louisiana, you're likely well aware of the saltwater wedge sweeping into the Mississippi River and threatening the drinking water supply. But it's not just residents who face concerns, as saltwater can also adversely affect the state's plants, trees, and wildlife. Bob Pavlovich discussed this with Heather Kirk Ballard, assistant professor in the School of Plant, Environmental, and Soil Sciences at the LSU Ag Center. Generally speaking, what does salt water or ocean water do to plants that are used to fresh water? Well, once we see it accumulate, some of the uh, impacts that it will have on the plant are stunted growth. And typically we'll see burned leaf edges. They look a little crunchy. We're kind of seeing that anyway with the drought, but... Um, it'll be exasperated with the the salt. And what becomes a problem is that the plants will have a reduced ability uh, to take up water and nutrients as that salt kind of builds up around the roots. And so we'll see something very similar to what we, we see when it comes to drought, just crunchy, dry, scorched along the edges, uh, just stunted growth. Does prolonged exposure kill them? Yes, prolonged exposure can cause major issues. And if it is for an extended period of time without being flushed out, it could cause plants to die, especially smaller plants, more herbaceous plants. Larger trees are a lot more adapted. They're fine, but smaller herbaceous plants, especially in our vegetables, it's going to be a major problem if you're a vegetable gardener. Among the native plants in the metropolitan New Orleans area, are there any that stand up well? To saltier water? Yes. So um, many of our native plants are a lot more tolerant to salinity than some of our highly cultivated plants. Some things like Louisiana iris definitely mm-hmm. has a higher salt tolerance than other plants. In addition to our native plants, there are several when we're talking about ornamental plants that we utilize in our landscape that are very tolerant of salt. Some of those that are highly tolerant, bougainvillea, or buddleia, bottle brush, bush daisy, and firecracker plants, which can be are considered a native plant. They are very tolerant or moderately tolerant of salinity. Cool season bedding plants such as snapdragons, portulaca, dianthus, chrysanthemums, vinca verbena, lantana, salvias. For those of you who want to uh, garden for pollinators. Those are also pretty tolerant of salt. So you can work with those. Some perennial flowers, agapanthus, plumbago, and uh, bird of paradise as well. Once the wedge passes us on the river, conservation, uh, they're already talking about that. Should we start now to capture what little rainwater we're getting? Absolutely. This isn't the first time that we've seen this. And it won't be the last time that we do. This is one of the worst droughts that we have had. But we're noticing with climate changes, we're seeing this more often, right? It could be cooler uh, sooner or late freezes. We're getting torrential downpours. And then some years we're having droughts like we are now. And actually, one thing that you can do 
capturing rain. You can invest in a cistern, you can get barrels. Um, but while you're seeing this going on, one thing to do as a gardener is to make note of those plants that actually survive during this time. I realize this may not be your specialty, but uh, are you hearing about commercial growers and nurse and nurseries? Are, are, are they making plans? Are they doing the same yep. thing? Yes, definitely. So these people are beginning to prepare. They're catching more water. Now, of course, we're not having any water, no rain in sight. So some of these larger nurseries are going to be investing in reverse osmosis or desalination units. And there are plenty um, especially here along the Gulf Coast where we have a lot of refining and chemical plants, they work a lot with the water from the Mississippi River. And anytime you have contaminants or things like that could be an issue for industrial type work. It's going to be an issue for um, these commercial growers. Heather Kirk-Ballard, Assistant Professor in the School of Plant, Environmental, and Soil Sciences at the LSU Ag Center. Thank you for joining us, Heather. Thank you. Appreciate it. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Back in May, we spoke with reporters Clarissa Sosen and Daryl Kahn about their investigative series, In the Dark. Published by the Verite Newsroom in New Orleans, this five-part series looked into the misconduct, complaints, and community mistrust of the Internal Affairs Division inside the Baton Rouge Police Department. Today, Verite has published a multi-part follow-up to their original series, and the reporters join us now for more. Clarissa, Daryl, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So catch us up for a minute. For anyone who missed our last conversation or hasn't read the original series, what were some of the stories you reported on? What was the larger narrative you were telling? Yeah, so in April, we published a five-part series with Verite um, about kind of how the Internal Affairs Department and the Baton Rouge Police Department functioned previously. It was sort of a more uh, historic look. Um, We'd gotten our hands on about 10 years worth of internal affairs reports. um, And we tracked down um, a lot of the complainants and wrote about their cases. And now this reporting opens in 2018 with Police Chief Murphy Paul deciding whether or not to fire Officer Salamone. Can you tell us about what led up to that moment? That was obviously a, a, uh, a decision that he inherited from his uh, predecessor, uh, Chief Carl Dabity, um, when, uh, I guess, or very early in the morning of July 5th, uh, two officers responding to a call of a man brandishing a gun uh, responded to the Triple S Mart during the encounter with police uh, officer Blaine Salamone shot and killed Alton Sterling. The uh, shooting resulted in protests and uh, garnered international attention. He, the, the, the mayor president, Mayor President uh, Sharon Weston Broom, um, ran largely on a platform of, uh, of trying to clean up the department uh, in the wake of that shooting and the turmoil it, called, it caused in the city. And uh, she appointed Chief Paul to uh, sort of be the point man for that uh, for that undertaking, um, and one of the first um, one of his first decisions was to 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 look into the Salamone shooting and uh, decide how to proceed. Yeah, tell me more about 2018, how that was handled with Officer Salamone and the new Police Chief Murphy Paul. There were two investigations into the shooting. Um, but one one 
by the feds and with the Department of Justice, another by uh, gubernatorial candidate Jeff Landry. Uh, both um, found that there were no uh, violations of Mr. Sterling's civil rights. There, there was no violation of use of force. But that so that meant that Chief Murphy Paul still had uh, the officer in, in his department, and uh, he made the decision to fire him. Um, that decision did a number of things. In some ways, it divided the city, uh, but it definitely divided the police department. Uh, and and that decision sort of became the first. Uh, it sort of set the tone, I think, for what would be the rest of his tumultuous uh, tenure as police chief in Baton Rouge. A big part of your investigation looked into community mistrust of the police in Baton Rouge. Can you describe that fraught relationship? Tell us how it plays into your more recent reporting. Yeah, so in our the, the five stories we published in April, um, we, we found that the way internal affairs was handled, um, it, it really did create a lot of mistrust between the, the department and the community. Um, people would, if people even went to go file, you'd have to go file in person. So if they even went to go file, they would never hear back and just nothing would really happen with their complaints. And so it seems as though a lot of the chief's efforts have really started to bridge the gap in that trust. He made reforms specifically to IA where like now people can file it online. I mean, under him, he disbanded the narcotics unit a couple of years ago um, and made arrests. As far as we can tell, it has helped with the mistrust that was really created and really emphasized um, by the way things were run previously. I know you even spoke with NAACP Baton Rouge President Eugene Collins. What did he have to say about the community's relationship with the police? Does he see any path forward to more trust and transparency, or are things, from his view, too difficult to patch up? The last we heard, I think it's former Baton Rouge President uh, Eugene Collins. You know, Eugene Collins has been sort of on the on the front lines of of Chief Paul's tenure, and in fact, you know, he's told us when they first met, I think they exchanged words that probably were not suitable for radio. And over time, that relationship has 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 changed because Eugene he's seen the changes in the police department, how the officers behave, how when they do not behave or conform to policy, that they are in fact reprimanded if not fired. So I think he has seen that change and he has welcomed the change. There's one thing actually I wouldn't mind adding to that. Um, the NAACP in Baton Rouge under Eugene Collins, they awarded Chief Paul um, a Man of the Year award this year, which is something they've never given a member of law enforcement or a police chief that before. Um, and so I think that that's, that's pretty telling to how how, how how much things have changed yeah. since 2016. We're speaking with reporters Clarissa Sosin and Daryl Kahn about their investigative series, In the Dark. It looks at misconduct, complaints, and mistrust in the Baton Rouge Police Department. Of course, since we began reporting on the BRPD, a huge story broke just recently. We're talking about the Brave Cave, the Baton Rouge Police Department's uh, industrial interrogation facility, a warehouse that served uh, as an unmonitored interrogation facility. You discussed this in your, your more recent reporting. What additional things have you found out as you looked into it? A few things that strike us is the name is a bit of a misnomer. Brave is, is the name of a, a more than a decade old now federal partnership, a program implemented by one of um, Chief Paul's predecessors, Chief Dwayne White. 
he started that as a uh, program designed to have the police department make inroads in the community, particularly the black community in Baton Rouge. He was run out of town after a very big public fight with the mayor back then. And um, in the intervening years, that program wilted and it became synonymous in uh, the city with sort of the street crimes unit. Uh, but in terms of our series and where it fits into sort of this larger narrative that we've been following for six years here, everybody we've talked to has said that this is another example of sort of the civil war that we've been writing about, um, about certain ways of doing things that the chief has tried to stamp out and to use policy, discipline, and training to get rid of. And, um, you know, people who have uh, wanted to uh, persist in doing things the old ways, the way the good old boy network would want to do it. Many of our sources, both in the community and in law enforcement, really pointed to the fact that Chief Paul, knowing that he's leaving soon, um, you know, made sure that BI would come in and have a rigorous independent investigation. Yeah, so continuing upon that train of thought now, because Police Chief Murphy Paul did announce he will be retiring. He announced in June um, after five and a half years on the job. Tell me a little bit about the legacy he'll be leaving behind. And what can you tell me about what your source's insight is on what will happen after Chief Murphy Paul? Will it be back to the usual or will there be some lasting change? I can definitely answer the, the second part of that question. Um, the people we've spoken to, they they definitely worry. Um, we sat in on a community precinct council meeting where they were discussing a specific policy that was maybe going to be put in place. And basically what it came down to was they trusted this new idea, but they weren't sure if they trusted the new idea without Chief Paul at the helm. We've been speaking with reporters Clarissa Sosin and Daryl Kahn about their investigative series. It's called In the Dark. It looks into misconduct, complaints, and mistrust in the Baton Rouge Police Department. You can listen on veritanews.org. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure. This is Louisiana Considered from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. Alzheimer's is a disease that has come to a prominent point culturally when we address issues of elder health, especially as a greater proportion of the population starts to experience life past retirement age. Well, that doesn't mean everybody is aware of the disease. The Alzheimer's Association is particularly concerned about awareness of Alzheimer's among the Latino population. With us, we have Dolores Hurst, Executive Director of the Louisiana Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Welcome to our studio. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We also have Tatiana Gonzalez-Quiroga, Director of Public Policy. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having us. So most of us, we might presume, are aware of what Alzheimer's is, what the effects are of dementia-related diseases, maybe what it looks like, maybe some warning signs. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean everybody is aware. How easy is it to assume that the message has gotten out, that the public awareness is there when it comes to public health, things like this? It's easy to assume that because when we're working and when you're a grassroots organization, sometimes you think about the mission and you're working on the mission, mission, mission. So we assume that we're making an impact because we see people. So we see 150 people that might be in the building, but that does not mean that the conversation was equitable across the board. Um, so we can't make the assumption that everyone heard you. But we do tend to assume that, oh, yeah, no, everybody got it because 100 people came 
But we do have to make sure that we count those communities who are marginalized if there is a language barrier, if there is a cultural barrier in that. How did we start finding out that the Latino community is possibly not getting the information to the same extent as everybody else? Yeah, so we recently attended a community event in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, and we were tabling, and it was a solely Latino-focused event, and the amount of people that were not aware of what Alzheimer's was, I even would speak to them in Spanish, you know, trying to describe the memory loss, the different symptoms, and everybody that came to our table did not even know of this disease. That was really alarming to Dolores and I, and it made us kind of open our eyes up to noticing that the Latino community might not even know in Louisiana what Alzheimer's is. Somebody thought it was like a facial condition, a skin condition. Um, So that was really alarming to us at that event that we attended. This is interesting because I presume Alzheimer's doesn't discriminate based on your background necessarily. So when you're talking to the Latino community, is it something where people just weren't aware that there was a name to this and that there are ways to deal with it in a support network? Is it just a situation where it happens and people just figure, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, grandma or grandpa getting old? Yeah, I think in the Latino community and speaking from experience as a Latina, a lot of people in this community think that memory loss is just a regular part of aging. I was talking to my mom earlier to just try to dig into more of the cultural side of medicine because that's something that tends to be heavy focused in Latinos. And she was saying that it's just common to expect your loved ones to experience memory loss and that you're just going to be the caregivers for them from now on versus they don't really want to accept that it's a physical health condition. Um, And there are statistics that say that even when a doctor wants them to have a memory screening, they're more likely to feel insulted that the doctor even wanted to get their memory screening because they think it's just regular signs of aging. Really, what are the cultural factors that might make that the response in one community uh, versus another community that would say, oh, yes, this is a, a health thing, a valid health thing, and we can do something about it? What are some of the cultural differences there? Education, a lack of really understanding Alzheimer's and dementia as a whole. Um, when speaking to my mom, she said they're more likely to understand what Alzheimer's is, but when you bring in the other forms of dementia, they kind of see that as something not related to physical health conditions. So it's that cultural values. And again, the fact that your family's supposed to take care of you even when you're experiencing memory loss and that's kind of their job and not the doctor's. So it's just that presumption that's been rooted in our traditions and the way that we take care of our families. Mm-hmm. And then I find too, in people of color generally mm-hmm. in marginalized communities, it's a trust thing. So mm-hmm. it's a matter of, are you someone we can trust to give us solid information that we can take back, especially as a black woman experiencing health disparities. I know in the black community particularly, they're like, no, I don't trust anyone talking to me unless you've been here. And I hear you are who your people are. Do I know you? Do I know what <laughs> what your background is? Yeah, and I think that speaks volumes to a statistic that we have 56% of Latino Americans who care for someone with Alzheimer's said that they actually face discrimination when mm-hmm. trying to navigate healthcare settings. Mm-hmm. So it's that trust, it's discrimination, culturally competent care also. We're speaking with Dolores Hurst and Tatiana Gonzalez-Caroga with the Louisiana chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. We're talking about Awareness, Alzheimer's awareness, specifically with the Latino community and some places where the community is lacking in that awareness. Looking at public health communication, 
Is there anything about the way that public health communication happens that excludes, that cuts off minority or immigrant communities where we would otherwise assume that that communication is working? Yeah. So I think it's a a matter of targeted marketing or targeted um, messaging. Um, I don't think we're analyzing enough about how we're communicating and the message is the medium or the medium is the message. Are we actually taking a step back and talking about how we're going to communicate in each community that we're trying to serve? Are we actually monitoring cultural behaviors in that communication? What's the best way? Is it the church? Is it um, a community center? Is it actually a park where people are going and you see the children playing or you see the the older guys that's playing um, dominoes in the black community or chess? Or is it actually creating a communication line where you have a leader of a community coming to the table? What have we learned from outreach efforts when it relates to public health in the past? What has you know cut off communities, kept them insulated in the past from public communication? I think it's... Again, it goes back to that trust thing. And something happened to where you broke trust, Mm -hmm. where one person go to the event, one to five people, and they had a bad experience and they felt discriminated against. And then they told their family members and their family members told the whole neighborhood that something happened. And they were like, no, we're not doing this again. It's you failed me one time and I trust that you're going to fail me again. It's it's a one and done type thing, especially in, in the communities like ours. Yeah, and I think it just shows like one in three Hispanic and Latino people believe that medical research is biased against people of color. Mm -hmm. So then again, it's why do they believe that? Is it because somebody they know was in a research program and trust was broken? So Mm -hmm. these clinical trials are vital for Mm -hmm. people of color to participate in. A lot of those, we have 1% of African-Americans and and 1% of of people of color who actually are involved in clinical trials nationally. So they don't have a voice in how how their bodies will respond to these treatments. Um, so we want them in the conversation. Tanya, tell me, how much of this is a language barrier with the Latino community? I think it's pretty significant. Like I said, Latinos want doctors that are going to look like them and be culturally competent. At even the event that we went to two weeks ago, the majority of the people there were not English speaking, and I had to speak to them in Spanish for them to kind of know who we were. So I think even that's a good concrete example of where we are at in mm-hmm. terms of understanding what Alzheimer's and dementia is in the Latino community just from that little event that we went to. Mm -hmm. um, It just gave us a really general picture of I can't imagine them being able to communicate that with their doctors if they can't even communicate what the disease is at a community event where we have resources available Mm -hmm. um, with information on what Alzheimer's is. So the language barrier is pretty significant, too, when trying to get that care. And that could be a reason why it's not diagnosed until later in life for Latinos in the United States. What are some things that the medical community could be doing to better serve the Latino community and make this awareness better? Just being in the community, find a way to be there, like be more grassroots, meet them where they are. So honestly, word of mouth still is a very solid form of um, communication and disseminating information. So I feel like just being in the community itself is the biggest thing they can do. For Latinos, family is a really big deal mm-hmm. to us. And having you know family involved in that care with your doctors, understanding that they're part of the 
of the plan for care for that patient is also really important. So understanding cultural values of your patients, I think, is also um, vital in terms of with Alzheimer's and dementia because it is such a personal disease. Dolores Hurst is executive director of the Louisiana chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. And Tatiana Gonzalez-Caroga is director of public policy for the organization. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. And that's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.